so uh, as Neil said, our topic for this afternoon is Jerusalem. Uh, we're looking at the past, uh, its past, its present and its future. Um, and uh, as, uh, as this is a Christadelphian hall, uh, we're going to be considering this from, from a biblical perspective. Uh, that's the idea, to look at Jerusalem in, in the Bible. Now this is an absolutely huge topic. Uh, one thing I hope I'll be getting across today is that Jerusalem is absolutely everywhere in, in the Bible. It's a, huge, it's a hugely central concept to uh, uh, to, to God's word um, and uh, we could probably do many more talks than, than just one here you could probably have a Jerusalem past part one and part two and then move on to present but um, we're going to be uh, so we're going to look at all of these so we're just going to be scratching the surface uh, this afternoon uh, but hopefully we'll get a, an overview uh, and an idea of the massive importance of Jerusalem in, in God's plan. So Jerusalem's past. Jerusalem has a long and complicated past. <coughs> it is considered to be one of the oldest cities in the world. It is considered a holy city by three major world religions and according to wikipedia has been destroyed at least twice twice besieged 23 times attacked 52 times and captured and recaptured 44 times so this seems somewhat ironic when we consider that the name jerusalem means city of peace So the Bible is the place to turn if we really want to, to unlock this long and complicated past and to consider Jerusalem's place in, in God's plan and consequently Jerusalem's importance to us. And the first biblical mention of Jerusalem is actually in Joshua. So, um, so you have God's uh, God's people, the, the children of Israel. They've uh, they've come uh, from Egypt. God's brought them out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness, and now in Joshua, they are in the process of conquering Canaan, which is the the, the land what the, the land of Israel was was originally called. Let's turn to Joshua chapter ten. I'll be looking at a few passages today, so you can uh, you can either come with me or you can you, you can you can just listen. Uh, I'll have the the references here if, if you want uh, uh, if if you want to just listen and maybe look them up later. Um, so Joshua chapter ten, uh, and uh, we'll just uh, I'll just read from the start the start of the chapter. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoam, king of Hebron, Pyram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Deber, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. So this, uh, at this point in history, Jerusalem is under the control of, of, this, uh, of this king called uh, this Amorite king called Adonai Zedek. He's one of five kings of the Amorites. And these, these five kings attack the children of Israel. And if you, if you read further down, they're actually defeated. And it's a, it's a great victory <coughs> for the children of Israel. 
and ultimately for, for God. Uh, he, he actually sends these great big hailstones, and these, these hailstones are, are what cause most of the casualties. So, um, so that's actually really, in a large part, how the battle is won. But this is an extremely notable victory uh, that is marked by an extraordinary act of God that we can read about just further down in verses 12 to 14. Uh, so we're reading from verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There, never, there has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So, the sun stops in the sky and it stays there for a full day. Don't know if you can imagine that. Well, that must have been such a huge sign for the children of Israel—a huge sign that God was with them and willing to to listen to them and help them. There has never been a day like it before or since—a day when the Lord listened to a human being. However, if if we uh, even after such a, a monumental victory. Uh, over the, this king of Jerusalem. If we read on later in the chapter, Jerusalem's actually not taken by the Israelites at this point. Um, in fact, Jerusalem isn't mentioned again until uh, uh, chapter 15 of Joshua. Uh, it seems strange that God wouldn't use this, this great victory marked by the stopping of the sun to give his, his holy city to his, to his people. But uh, no, he doesn't, he doesn't do this just yet. But let's, let's keep going through the, uh, the biblical narrative of Jerusalem and, and let's turn to Joshua chapter 15. It's just a, a brief mention there in verse 8. Um, uh, the start of the, this chapter 15 is describing... Um, so it's this, uh, 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 it's describing the, the tribe of Judah within Israel and, and where, it's, where it's going to be. It's describing Judah's allotment, what, what, what God is, the land God has chosen for the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and then we uh, read about this, uh, uh, the border of the land um, in verse 8. Then it ran up the valley, the valley of Ben-Hinnom along the southern slope of the Jebusite city. That is Jerusalem. Now notice here, the Jebusite city, that is Jerusalem, not the Israelite city. There's a lot of emphasis placed on the fact that the city belongs to the Jebusites, and not the Israelites at this point. And, and if we look at the end of this chapter, chapter 15, perhaps we can see why. Just in verse 63 there, the last verse of Joshua 15. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. So there we go. They haven't been. The Jebusites weren't dislodged. But let's let's now look at the the narrative after after the death of Joshua. Um, after Joshua Joshua dies, um, just the next book of the Bible, uh, Judges, chapter one, just a few pages over. Uh, so um, Joshua has just died and uh, in Judges chapter 1 the, the children of Israel, the Israelites decide to, to take over the rest of this land to fight the remaining Canaanites as, just as Joshua had told them to do before he died um, and in, in verse 8 the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it 
they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. So Jerusalem is is uh, is taken by the, by by the, the men of Judah just as uh, just as it was kind of planned for uh, back in Joshua, uh, just as it was allotted out to them. But if we look further on in the chapter, uh, verse twenty one of Judges chapter one. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites <coughs> live there with the Benjamites. So the cities, it's still considered to be kind of part, partly a Jebusite city. Part, partly part of Israel and part, partly a Jebusite city. And it's not until the time of David, one of the first kings of Israel, that Jerusalem is really considered to fully belong to Israel. Let's uh, let's just just turn a, a bit further um, uh, to Second Samuel chapter five. It's just two or three books on. Second Samuel chapter 5 is, is the chapter that King David uh, assumes this, this throne of Israel. And uh, if we look at verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought... David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So, so you know, at this point, this is a uh, this is many years on uh, from uh, from Joshua in the time of the judges. Jerusalem is still associated with the Jebusites. It was the Jebusites who lived there even though the tribe of Judah in Israel had taken Jerusalem. But by the end of verse 7 there, Jerusalem is called the city of David. Elsewhere in the Bible, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And he takes Jerusalem and he sets up resident there. And it's at this point that Jerusalem becomes inextricably associated with Israel. So it's when David becomes king that Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. It's also interesting to note that the first recorded action we have of David after he becomes king is the taking of Jerusalem. So <clears throat> there seems to be quite a clear message here. Israel, having a king that is true and faithful to God, goes hand in hand with Israel being governed from, governed from Jerusalem. We have an important precedent being set here of the capital city of God's kingdom being Jerusalem. And just in the, in the very next chapter, Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, We've got another very important precedent being set. Uh, I'll just read to you from verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And that city of David is Jerusalem. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a little ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So the, the Ark of the Covenant, which has been with the children of Israel since um, uh, it's since the, the wilderness, since coming out, uh, coming out of Egypt, and it's been um, it's 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 here now. It's brought to Jerusalem and. And David makes all these sacrifices and he wears a linen, linen ephod and he worships God here. Uh, 
And here we have the precedent being set of Jerusalem being the centre of worship to God. The place where the presence of God rests. Just like it did in the the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle in the the wilderness. And then the the next chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see David, he wants to establish this idea of uh, Jerusalem being the place where you worship God. And he wants to do that more firmly by giving God a house. So Second uh, Samuel 7 and verse 7. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And uh, it's ultimately David's son, Solomon, that builds that temple. In, uh, he builds a temple in Jerusalem, a permanent place. And at that point, it's even more established that Jerusalem is the place where people go to worship God. And this is the point where we have a, a golden age for the, for the, for the kingdom of Israel, where, where Solomon's Perhaps you've heard of the wisdom and the riches of Solomon. And, and they become, these, the wisdom and the riches become famous. And the surrounding nations come to Jerusalem to hear Solomon's wisdom. And, and this points forward to, to the kingdom, where the, the surrounding nations are going to come to Jerusalem to, to worship God. But this golden age with, with Solomon isn't, it's not to last. And what we find is that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he doesn't listen to, to the advice of his, of his advisor and his elders, and, and he treats his people harshly. And so there are 12 tribes of Israel, and, and the northern 10 rebel under, uh, under a different king, Jeroboam. And it's, it's interesting to note the words that they use when they, at this point of rebellion, when Ten tribes decide to split away from uh, from from the rest of from the rest of Israel, and this is in uh, um, maybe staying in Second Samuel chapter seven because I'm just going to uh, read to you one verse from um, from First Kings twelve. When all Israel saw that the king Rehoboam refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So here, when the Israelites, when when these ten tribes reject Rehoboam, David's grandson, they're rejecting the house of David. And it was God who built that house. It was God who put David in in charge of of Israel. Um, And uh, so uh, back in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read to you, kind of starting in in verse 11, uh, just before uh, chapter, uh, verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is God talking to David here. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it was God who established David's house, King David's house, and it was consequently David's house, actually his son Solomon, who built a house for God's name. He built the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. So when the Israelites rejected the house of David, when they say, look to your own house, we're going back to our tents. They were rejecting God's house in Jerusalem. And if it was this 
It was this split from that temple, that place of worship in Jerusalem, that caused all these terrible problems for for the northern ten tribes that that rebelled, because because the part that rebelled didn't have Jerusalem in it. So how how could they how could they worship uh, how could they worship in Jerusalem? But first, uh, look. Uh, Let's turn to First Kings twelve now. <coughs> First Kings twelve. So this is this is Jeroboam, uh, this king who's just rebelled. From, from the rest of the from, from the house of David uh, and this is, this is his thought process here Jeroboam thought to himself the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David these people go up to offer their sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem they will again give their allegiance to their lord Rehoboam king of Judah they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So that's what Jeroboam, the king of these rebelling northern ten tribes, that's what he's worried about. They're still tied to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was established as the place to worship God. And offer up sacrifices to him. Jeroboam can't stand the level of influence that Jerusalem still have has over his, over his people. And he's worried that this is going to cause everybody to go back to Rehoboam. Back to the house of David. So he feels the need to do something about this. And then in verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who you brought up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Two golden calves. And suddenly, just like that, the northern ten tribes who rebelled, they're not worshipping God anymore. They're worshipping idols. And from this point on, history doesn't, doesn't get any better for the northern, the northern ten tribes of Israel. They're, they have a succession of very bad kings, uh, followed by complete destruction by the Assyrians. And all of this started from the desire to get away from David's house and from worshipping God in Jerusalem. So we see here how incredibly important Jerusalem is for the nation of Israel. God establishes Jerusalem as the place for the people to, to worship him. And the people that lose Jerusalem very quickly turn to idols and they're lost. Now let's, let's compare the, the history of Judah. So that's the southern two tribes, the tribes that didn't rebel, rebel and stayed. Uh, they, they still have the line of David. They're, they're under Rehoboam, David's grandson. And, and they still have this house of God's name in Jerusalem. And, and they also have mostly bad kings. But they have some good kings as well. And there's one good king uh, that, that I'd like to talk about in, in particular. Um, if you just turn over uh, to Second Kings 18. So that's again a bit, bit uh, just a uh, so further on. <clears throat> so this this king, uh, this good king is is called Hezekiah. So Second uh, uh, Kings eighteen and, and verse nine. In King, Hezekiah's, in King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. 
want you to note here, Samaria is the capital city of those northern ten tribes. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. So this is the point at which Israel, those northern ten tribes which rebelled, they're conquered by the king of Assyria. Now at this point you'd expect that, that Judah, those, those southern two tribes, they're just next door. So you'd expect them to, to, to fall to Assyria too, because this massive Assyrian empire is coming down, uh, coming down the, the Levant and, and, and taking all these, uh, all these nations. So, so next stop, next stop Judah. Uh, and and then indeed, if you look forward, uh, uh, just a couple of verses down in verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Jerusalem and captured them. So this is almost happening here. It's almost taken. Then, uh, and then he, he besieges Jerusalem, which is the last line of defence for Judah. If you look down in verse 17. King of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field armor, uh, field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. So they're right, right outside Jerusalem. And then the commander of the Syrian army, he speaks to Hezekiah and he says something very interesting. In verse 22. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the ones whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? So Hezekiah, he, um, he tore down all these high places uh, where places people have worshipped uh, under bad kings before him, and he made sure that his people worshipped <coughs> at the altar in Jerusalem, presumably in the temple. He was continuing the precedent that, that his ancestors, David and Solomon, had set that the house of the name of God was in Jerusalem. And uh, the very next chapter, uh, 2 Kings 19, this is, this is the point where, where Jerusalem is just right on the cusp of being taken by the Assyrians. You know, this, they're really close to having the same thing that happened to the northern ten tribes. They're, they're about to be destroyed. And Hezekiah receives this letter from, from Sennacherib in uh, verses 9 to, to 13. That he, he, um, he compares the God of Israel to all the other gods of the surrounding nations that, that weren't good enough. They weren't any help against Syria. Um, so for example verse, verse 11 there look you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them how shall you be delivered have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed Gozan and Hare and Rezeph and the people of Eden who are in Telazar so he, he's talking about all these all these people all these other kings and all these other nations and all these other gods that haven't been any help against against the Assyrian army. But then in verse 14, uh, Hezekiah takes this, uh, he, he, this, this is Hezekiah's response. So he's just received this, this letter basically telling him that, that everything he, he believes in, there's no hope because he's just like everybody else, all these other nations. Uh, and what does he do in verse 14? He received the letter from the messengers and read it. And he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. He goes right to God's temple, God's established place of worship in Jerusalem, and he lays it out in front of God. And he, gave, he gives this amazing prayer to God. Uh, if you've got to open it, it's in verses 15 to 19, and, and it ends... Uh, he ends it like this in verse 19. Now, Lord our God, 
deliver us, save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is a plea to God to show the Assyrians and all the other nations the power of of the one true God that he believes in. And God answers this prayer in quite an astonishing way. Um, this, is, this is quite a story. He really shows his superiority to the, to the surrounding nations and to Israel, uh, without a doubt. Because if you look on at the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 19, verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. So that puts pay to Assyria. Armies destroyed. The king goes back and then he's destroyed, worshipping his God. And Jerusalem is saved. It remains in the hands of, of God's people for now. But what's, what's really interesting is if we look at the reason that God has stepped in at this point to save Jerusalem against this huge tide of, of Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian army. There are several reasons. Um, but the one, um, uh, well, uh, and, and we can see, sorry, we can see all these reasons uh, in, uh, in chapter 19. Um, there's a prophet Isaiah, uh, so a prophet from God, Isaiah, and he's talking to Hezekiah. And it's uh, and between verse twenty and verse thirty-four, it's this big response from God. So Hezekiah has asked for help, and and, and this is God's response through uh, through Isaiah. And we can see why why God does what He does uh, and saves saves the saves Jerusalem. Um, uh, so uh, the most obvious reason that we have is in verse twenty. Um, so Isaiah says, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel." Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. So, so he's responding to Hezekiah's faith. Hezekiah's asked for help. He's laid out this letter in front of the temple and he believes in God. And he puts his troubles before God. And God says, because you've done that, I'm going to save you. But then that's one reason. Another reason is that, uh, uh, if you remember the letter that, that was sent to Hezekiah had all these things about all these other nations and all these other gods and how they didn't matter and just in the same way the God of Israel doesn't matter um, and you can see this in this letter too that because of that God has stepped in and shown uh, uh, and, and saved Jerusalem and, and, and shown the, all these other nations that, that Jerusalem is different that, the, uh, that God is the one true God but the, the last reason that I find that's really interesting as to why God stepped in and saved Jerusalem is in verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God is doing this for the sake of David, or rather the sake of the, the promise that he made with David. If you remember, he built David a house. And Hezekiah is part of that house. And David's house, his descendants, have built God's house in Jerusalem. And God's house is being used by Hezekiah as a place of worship. An obeisance to God, a place to show his trust to God. And God honours that promise, he honours that covenant by acting to protect both the house of David and his own house, that temple in Jerusalem.
but then things go a bit wrong. Because uh, in the very next chapter, we can see some, some contrasting behaviour. This is, this is uh, Hezekiah gets it a bit wrong. Uh, so if you, if you just turn the page to, to 2 Kings chapter 20, um, um, starting from verse 12, so Hezekiah has been, been ill. <coughs> In verse 12, at that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouses the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said, there is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. But what he showed them are all these physical treasures, the gold and the spices. That's, what's, that's what he showed is important. Rather than, than showing these Babylonians, he's not showed them God. And he doesn't give God the glory, he shows these riches. So it's like he's, he's no longer trusting in God, he's like, like he did when he laid that letter in front of the temple. But he's, he's looking to his own riches, he's showing pride instead of humility and he's not being a, a witness to the other nations like he was with the Assyrians and this is the consequence in, in verse 16 then Isaiah said to Hezekiah hear the words of the Lord the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon nothing will be left says the Lord So God is, is, is not going to, to act to protect Jerusalem and his own house because it's no longer the place of humility and worship and witness that he intended it to be. In verse, uh, verse 18 there, And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the kings of Babylon. So God here is, is no longer going to act to protect Hezekiah's descendants, the, the house of David, because this house has broken the covenant that he set up with David. But this whole thing is temporary because God's merciful. He, he actually saves his people. When the Babylonians attack and they, they, they take the whole of Judah and Israel, he, he saves them and he keeps them intact because... He brings them up out of the land in, in, into captivity uh, and he protects them and they still exist as a people and then eventually they, they, the people go back under the king of, uh, uh, under the, the Medo-Persians, they actually go back to the land and they, they rebuild the temple. And we could dwell more on that uh, but we're not going to because there's not enough time. Uh, let's uh, let's skip ahead to the New Testament. Um, and Mark 11, which was our, our reading. <clears throat> and this is, a, this is a really important chapter because what we see here is the house of David, David's descendants, coming back to Jerusalem and being restored. So um, this is a thread that's been going through all the way from the Old Testament and now we're picking it up again in the New Testament in, in Mark 11. Uh, starting from verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus is a descendant of David. And the son of David is back. The house of David is restored in Jerusalem. And he arrives on on the foal of a donkey. A picture of the humility that is completely opposite of the, the pride of Hezekiah when he showed off all these riches. What's interesting here is the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives is go straight to the temple. God has restored the house of David. And the first thing on Jesus' mind is to restore the house of God. If you read on in Mark, the very next day, he goes to the temple and he overturns all these tables and he chases out these, these money lenders and he says in verse 17 of chapter 11, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Jesus wants that house to be a house of prayer, a house of worship again. But it goes further than that. Jesus actually uh, cleanses the temple twice during his ministry. We'll just look at the second time. But the first time is in John chapters, chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2. And uh, let's just listen to what Jesus has to say just after he's cleansed the temple. John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So right up until this point, the, the house of God's been in Jerusalem. The temple, the place to worship God. And Jesus extends the principle of the temple in Jerusalem being the house of God and he teaches But the body is a house of God too. That we can worship him wherever we are and keep ourselves holy and act in humility. And this this immediately shows that God can be worshipped and glorified throughout the whole world, not just in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem still has some special status because it was established by David and Solomon as, as the place of the house of God, a place of worship a place of humility and a place of sacrifice. And so Jesus doesn't restore the house of David when he comes back to Jerusalem. He restores the house of God too. He acts to restore the temple as a place of worship. And then in Jerusalem, he commits the ultimate act of sacrifice. He gives up his life. So we've looked at the past. Uh, Don't need to worry, that was by far the largest part. Uh, Jerusalem has a huge past and I wanted to get get into that so that we can apply those things to um, the present and the future. Um, Because that's uh, that's how you understand what's happening now and what's going to happen. Uh, So so we've seen in the past Jerusalem's been established, uh, it's firmly established as, as the place of the house of David and the place of the house of God, a place of worship, the place of sacrifice, the place where the King of Israel sits. Now let's show us to briefly think about the present and, and Jerusalem's current status. Jerusalem sits in a divided <coughs> Israel and is itself divided. It's, it's under the control of the, the Israelis, but it's, it's half Palestinian, half, half Israeli. Uh, and in fact, the, the old city has been historically divided into, into four quarters. The, the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, and the, the Armenian quarter. The, the Dome of the Rock um, 
stands on the Temple Mount, not not a Jewish temple, a, a Muslim temple stands on the on the on the Temple Mount. The Israelis and Palestinians Palestinians live alongside each other in an uneasy semblance of peace that often breaks out into violence. Jerusalem being only partly Israeli is no longer widely considered the capital of Israel. That's Tel Aviv. Israeli nationalism is matched by Palestinian nationalism. Not only that, but every nation, every other nation around the world that, that, uh, that gets politically involved in the peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians always has a huge headache and seems to come out, of, uh, come out seriously regretting it. If we, um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the capital of, of Israel is widely considered to be Tel, Tel Aviv uh, as opposed to Jerusalem, but uh, I'm sure you might have heard that Donald Trump, uh, the US president, has recently, he's decided to name Jerusalem as the capital of Israel instead of Tel Aviv. And there's been something of a backlash to that. Uh, here's a quote from CNN with uh, the, United Na- there's, uh, the United Nations response to this. Um, so the United Nations voted overwhelmingly to condemn President Donald Trump's decision to recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, despite threats from the US to pull funding from the world body. Some 128 countries voted for the resolution, while nine voted no, and 35 nations abstained. So there we go, the US is pretty, pretty isolated there. 128 countries coming out against, uh, against Donald Trump's de, uh, decision. And the US has received overwhelming condemnation from the other nations of the world in doing this. <clears throat> And there, there are many other nations that have also been regretted being, being involved somehow in, in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in Israel or in Palestine. Uh, uh, think about it, the British government uh, faced a huge backlash after the, the Balfour Declaration in, in 1917. Now the, the Balfour Declaration was when the British government basically declared that the Jews should have um, a nation. In the land of Israel, this is this is how it should be. They should be back in Israel, and and they resolved to, to bring this about in some form. Um, uh, I'm just going to look at Wikipedia, um, uh, which describes the consequences of this. Now, uh, Wikipedia is quite good because it's edited by thousands and thousands of people worldwide. So what you end up with mm-hmm. is hopefully something that's true. But, you know, it doesn't. It's quite often not true. But uh, what you do end up with is, is kind of a, a popular consensus of of uh, what's happening. So this is this is a this is a um, a popular consensus of what what happened because of the Balfour Declaration. Um, so this is a, this is it. The declaration had two indirect consequences: the emergence of Jews, a Jewish state, and a chronic state of conflict between Arabs and Jews throughout the Middle East. It has been described as the original sin with respect to both Britain's failure in Palestine and for wider events in Palestine. So, Britain really doesn't come out of this well. and, and uh, Even now, it's, it's a hugely politically charged issue. Um, I remember when I was at university, the one thing that uh, students were really protesting about was freedom for Palestine. So it's a massive, hugely politically charged issue. Um, um, and Britain really doesn't come out of this well. Uh, the country is essentially shouldered with the, the blame for decades of, of Arab-Israeli conflict. So all these countries have, uh, have tried to, to get involved. Uh, and what's interesting is that there, there are biblical prophecies about this, this situation now. I'm just going to read, read from Zechariah 12 and verse 3. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burn themselves with it shall be cut in pieces 
though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And Jerusalem has indeed been a burdensome stone to the US, the UK and every other nation that tries to get involved. The Israeli-Palestinian peace process is still an ongoing problem that seems completely unsolvable and it damages the reputation of every nation that tries to solve it. Now, uh, we spent a long time in the past of Jerusalem and this is one of the reasons. Isn't this whole tremendously difficult situation with Jerusalem and Israel and Palestine remind you a little bit of the Jerusalem that we looked at back in Joshua and Judges uh, before David came along. It was generally considered to be a Jebusite city as well as an Israelite city. And Jebusites and Israelites lived alongside each other and it was frequently occupied and taken (coughs) by the Israelites but never fully assimilated into Israelite culture until the king comes and sets up Jerusalem as a capital city and a place of worship, the house of David and the house of God. And this is going to happen in the future. The house of David, Jesus. The influence of that city is going to grow until the whole world unites under one nation and the whole world worships God. And that's what the world has to look forward to. Let's, let's finish off by considering the future of Jerusalem. And it's impossible to look at the future of Jerusalem without looking at the future of the whole world because the... Um, They go hand in hand, uh, as you'll see. Uh, Let's let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. chapter 11 and just the very first verse there there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit and this here is Jesus coming back remember that Jesus is a descendant of David now Jesse is actually David's father so what it's talking about here the shoot from the stump of Jesse that's that's Jesus Jesus is the first person who fits that description um Now you can keep a, a finger in Isaiah 11 if you want, we're coming back there. Uh, I'm going to look at Zechariah 14 verse 4. Um, again, you can, you can choose to turn it up or, or just listen to me read it. Zechariah 14 and verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. So Jesus is going to be standing on the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back to this earth, and that's where he's going to be. And the mouth of all of course, we've read there. It's right next to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be Jesus' starting point. So we have it again, the house of David being restored in Jerusalem. Jesus coming back to Jerusalem. If you flick back to Isaiah again, chapter 11, in verse 4, we have this uh, in the middle of verse 4. And this is still Jesus we're talking about here. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The whole earth. He's going to take control of the whole earth from that starting point in Jerusalem. And we have this 
picture of the, the word of God radiating out of Jerusalem and everybody learning about it and everybody uh, becoming a, a subject of, of King Jesus. So, <clears throat> Jerusalem being the capital city and the seat of the king will become the centre of worship to God for the whole earth. So there we have the, the house of David and the house of God fully restored in Jerusalem. And this is, uh, uh, this is our uh, vision of, what we, um, of the millennium. So this is, a, this is going to be around a thousand years after Jesus comes back. But then after this, we learn that God is going to be coming down. He's going to be with us. And he'll be all in all. Uh, and it, I, um, <clears throat> So if you just turn to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to finish there. Revelation 21, uh, starting from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So there we have Jerusalem being made new by God and coming down out of heaven. If you look at verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. If you're in uh, Revelation 21, uh, we get a whole detailed description of this new Jerusalem that's going to what's going to be like between between verse 10 and verse 21 I'll just dip through it uh, it really sounds quite astonishing so the, the whole city is shining like a precious jewel the, the 12 gates of the city are each made out of a single astonishingly huge pearl and it's interesting we, we actually get the dimensions of this city as well um, and I'm really not sure whether this is a, a symbolic prophecy or, or whether there really actually is going to be a city like this. But, but I love to see it because it's, it's going to be 1,400 miles long and wide and tall. If you imagine it was situated where Jerusalem is currently, it would cover all of Egypt, Turkey, most of Iraq and half of Saudi Arabia. And being that tall, it would reach well into space as well. More than, more than five times higher than the International Space Station. And of course, we, we, we don't know if these countries or even, or even space will, will exist in this new heaven and new earth uh, that God talks about in, in verse 1 there. Uh, we actually know from elsewhere in the Bible that, that there's not going to be any need for the sun or the moon because of God's glory. Perhaps just that, those dimensions and, and, and this picture gives us the smallest of glimpses into the unimaginable scale, the beauty and the glory of God's kingdom. But I'd like to finish off just by looking at verse 22 in Revelation chapter 21. So he's just described this amazing city that says... I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So if you remember, we looked at Jesus equating his body with the temple. 
talking about the temple being destroyed of his body and being raised up in three days. And that's completely fulfilled here. There is no longer a temple in New Jerusalem as a place to worship God, no longer a specific place to worship God, because God will be there. And his glory is going to fill the whole earth. And that's God's ultimate plan. God's house, which was established in Jerusalem, will be the whole world. And we are invited to share that with him. So the question for us is, are we, how are we going to respond to that invitation? Or are we going to take up that invitation to, to share the world with God?